Hey everybody, Stephen Clyde here back for day five of War in the Middle East. I'm joined by my two good friends, Will and Kyle, both at the same time. We're going to discuss Libya and we're going to give a recap of everything we discussed this week. Hope you guys enjoy the show. The Peace Liberty Podcast, episode 20. All right, glad to be joined by my friends Will and Kyle. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Thanks for having uh, me back on the show. I'm good, Steve. Thanks for having me back on too. Yeah, great to have you guys both on at once. So we kind of mentioned this idea earlier in the week and we finally made it happen. So I guess we covered Iraq, we covered Afghanistan, we covered Syria, we covered um, Yemen. So I guess today we're going to cover Libya. And I think you guys mentioned we're possibly going to cover Somalia today. I guess, uh, you know, Kyle can maybe do some map interaction for us today again and yeah let's do it start it off guys well well i'll let you start off on libya yeah sure so um just to basically characterize what the libyan uh because what, what libya was this is in 2011 it's basically there's a protest movement in the country on the heels of the arab spring movement and i think we've mentioned the arab spring several different times several times throughout the episodes in the past week this is basically just like a widespread uh, protest movement in not only the Arab world, but in North Africa as well, what they call the Islamic Maghreb. And in a lot of cases, this is against uh, American-backed regimes and dictators. In this case, Gaddafi wasn't so much one of those. But um, And so, yeah, in March of 2011, um, the NATO intervention began there. And NATO, of course, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, has got like 29 member states, but it was mostly the United States and France and the UK leading this regime change. And um, it was pretty much justified with several different lies, sets of lies. The major one is that uh, the Gaddafi regime is threatening civilians and that he's, you know, a, a giant uh, uh, civilian casualty incident is, is right about to happen. It's on the brink. So we have to go in there and stop it. And so that's exactly what happened. And it's, this thing was sort of spearheaded by uh, the Secretary of State at the time, Hillary Clinton. And she pushed a lot of these lies about the, um, about the civilian casualties. Um, there's a guy named Max, or not Max, that's his son, uh, Sidney Blumenthal, excuse me. This is sort of a Clinton apparatchik. And this guy was feeding her basically rebel rumors throughout the whole lead up to the conflict, telling her about the, you know, how Gaddafi's troops were about to mass rape women and children and slaughter civilians and stuff. And so effectively, this is what justified the uh, regime change operation there. And obviously it's a mess today. Um, I was watching a video earlier earlier that pretty much stated that when Gaddafi was overthrown, you pretty much had a lot of different people trying to rise up and take over power. So how did that evolve? Yeah, so that eventually culminated in effectively three different governments, uh, you know, claiming legitimacy in the country. One of them, I think, had like international recognition, but the other two, they're, they're just, you know, they're, it, was, it was chaos, basically. Gotcha. Well, uh, Kyle, you want to pull us up a map? Yeah, I got the map up here, and I guess to start off where Will left off, we could kind of go over the three governments. One government, and I believe this is the government in blue on the map, is the UN-recognized government that the United States bats. Uh, This pink government is kind of a popular, I would guess, movement within uh, Western Libya. And then the big red you have here is the area controlled by General Hiftar, who was actually a former CIA uh, implant that tried to uh, do a coup on Gaddafi like 25 or 30 years ago and was actually living outside of uh, 
in Virginia somewhere up Langley. until the, yeah Langley up until the death of uh, uh, Muammar Gaddafi actually. And so one of the crazy things is is that that now this guy is in Libya. In the past, he's gotten support from the UAE. So right now we have a UAE military, which is pretty much uh, you know given to them by the United States of America. Uh, that's actually fighting for an enemy, you know, power in Libya of the United States. And uh, Heftar is also backed, at least in some part, by Russia. You know, I, 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 I want to interject and just ask one question for the both of you. Because, by the way, the word coup, it's spelled C-O-U-P. I've heard, I've heard some people say coup. It's called a coup. But, you know, one thing communists will accuse us of or accuse capitalists of is that we intervene in countries a lot we set up coups and we try to overthrow governments they try to use that against us as like why capitalism won't work so how would you guys respond to that obviously there's some truth to the coups we've established you know throughout history but what do you guys think about it you want to take that kyle or you want me to uh, yeah i guess just to start off i mean yeah since the um you know, really the start of the cold war and i mean even before Amer- american imperialism you know, was going on uh, with the, the Spanish-American War right at the end of, uh, what would that be, the 19th century. But uh, in this case, what I would just say is that obviously post-World War II America was an empire and in no way resembled the, you know, constitutional republic which the country was founded on. And, uh, and, and at the, it, you know, is nowhere near a capitalist or a state that anybody who claims to be an anarcho-capitalist capitalist would recognize or subscribe to i mean remember just a couple of years before the american government rounded up the japanese people and put them into camps and so to pretend then like this is some kind of like constitutional government and that the ideals of limited government and free market capitalism are actually being put on trial by the actions of the american government is laughable yeah absolutely well uh Go ahead. I was going to say, uh, maybe I just interject there, too, that, like, as Kyle said, this is imperialism we're talking about here, which the communists, I guess, like Vladimir Lenin would say that that is the highest form of capitalism. But that's I don't agree with that. I think imperialism is sort of uh, the antithesis of, you know, genuine markets and genuine trade. This is this involves interventionism. So I think real capitalists are against domestic intervention in the domestic economy, as well as foreign intervention. Well, I think one thing communists would argue, and it's um, they, they would argue that we have all these resources that we extract from many different countries. And obviously, we extract some resources from war-torn countries that we essentially perpetuate the wars there. It seems like there is some truth that we capitalism as it exists now, it would seem like if you're anti-war, wouldn't you have to be like anti-resources? You know, but obviously, that doesn't really make sense. But you could see where I'm going with that, that that's something the communists would argue. Well, right. right. I mean, go ahead, go. yeah, I would just say that the American government going overseas and creating situations for uh, American companies, uh, you know, like oil companies like Shell or Exxon to get favorable contracts in the Middle East or other places, uh, you know, to get oil is not in any way uh, something that a capitalist would favor. I'm paying tax dollars to my government so then they could go and provide security and subsidize the cost of oil for big companies. And then the big companies turn around, give the government and the government officials money. I mean, that sounds a lot more like, you know, uh, you know, Soviet style cronyism and and corruption than what a free market capitalist system would ever look like. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, 
Yeah, I agree with what you said. <laughs> well, I guess let's kind of start our discussion on Libya. So what kind of led up to everything we're, we're going to discuss? Because obviously one thing people are familiar with is the Benghazi attack and Hillary Clinton was under fire for that. She still is today. But what led up to all this? Well, in 2011, right, Will, we have uh, the Arab Spring coming to Libya and we had a lot of, you know, popular uprising. People did not like living under Muammar Gaddafi and for good reason. He was a dictator and he was a tyrant. Uh, that being said, there was a uprising in Benghazi and there were a lot of terrorists and jihadist groups involved in that uprising, in part because after uh, the Iraq war, uh, you know, all the veterans of the Iraq war who fought on the side of the jihadists went back home. And in some cases, home was Libya. And so you have a ton of jihadist fighters going there. And Gaddafi was taking his, you know, personal security force, because Libya didn't have a massive army, to Benghazi to root out the jihadist fighters. Now, the lie was that the, uh, the, the soldiers were going there to kill every man, woman, and child. And I think at this time they were even pushing the lie that Gaddafi was giving his soldiers Viagra so they could continue to rape women at will and won't be stopped by, I guess, you know, the, the natural male, uh, you know, uh, endurance problems. Jesus. Right. And so these claims are absolutely completely false. Uh, Muammar Gaddafi was not going to Benghazi to kill everyone. And the Viagra story was no more true than the idea that uh, in 1990, the Iraqi soldiers were taking babies out of incubators and fleeing them from one bayonet to the next. It's an absolute lie. And it's a lie that got America uh, to, you know, go and start bombing the Gaddafi forces in 2011. Are you able to show us Benghazi on the map? Because I'm just, like I said, we discussed, discussed uh, Yemen yesterday, and I just, that was the first time I noted where it was in the map. I mean, I think most people just, not only do they not care about foreign policy, they don't really care about geography or like what's going on in the world. So yeah, maybe you could show us that real quick. All right. So uh, yeah, in the Northern areas of Libya here, uh, Benghazi is a major city in the Western half of Libya. Uh, towards the central on the coast, you have Sirt. And then over on the Eastern half, or, oh, sorry, I got my East and West mess up. On the Western half, you have Tripoli. And so, uh, you know, th these are the major cities in Libya. And I think Tripoli is the capital. Gotcha. And can I just make two points, I think, about, uh, I think, Benghazi that are important that stick out? Please um, do. And so the, the GOP in the United States, the Republicans, made a huge deal about Benghazi, about the ambassador, uh, Stevens, who got killed there uh, in the uprising. However, I think the real scandal of Benghazi was that, like, literally while that was happening at the same time, the Central Intelligence Agency was raiding Libyan arsenals and helping to starting to smuggle them out out of the country through Turkey. And I mentioned this on our Syria episode that eventually those were headed towards Syria for rebels. And so that's a real, I think, one of the scandals of Benghazi. And Kyle mentioned the babies and in incubators thing. And I don't know if your audience is familiar with that, but I think it really is illustrative to kind of show how these alleged humanitarian interventions, what's called in the case of Libya, it's called R2P or responsibility to protect. Often they're just based on absolute lies or war rumors. And in this case, the whole thing about uh, Viagra being given to soldiers to rape, to, to you know, mass, a mass raping campaign, that literally was a rebel, just a, just a rumor that was going around at the time. And Sidney Blumenthal told that to Hillary Clinton very early on in the conflict, and she helped to spread that lie. And so it's, it's very similar to the babies and incubators thing where a, uh, a, the, the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador uh, testified before a human rights council that 
Iraqi soldiers in the invasion of Kuwait were leaving babies out of their incubators and leaving them to die on the floor. But it turns out she was the daughter of the ambassador, not some nurse or something at the hospital. And this whole thing was organized by the PR firm uh, Hill and Knowlton. And so I think that that's a very illustrative case. And it's very similar to the kind of lies that were used to justify the, uh, the bombing campaign in 2011. That's insane. Yeah, right. And, and just to clarify uh, to what Will was talking about, the Benghazi attack occurred in 2012 after Gaddafi was already dead. So what the Americans were doing was they were taking the jihadists who fought against Gaddafi as well as the weapons uh, that were Gaddafi's and giving them to Syrian rebels. And so I guess some jihadists got whiff of this and went and raided the rebel stashes for themselves. And this is how Ambassador Chris Stevens died. And maybe in the show notes page, you could link to an article by Seymour Hersh uh, called The Rat Line, in which Seymour Hersh explains and really breaks the story and how there was a real scandal going on in Benghazi. And no, it wasn't that Hillary Clinton was weak. It was that Hillary Clinton was trying to you know, manipulate jihadist fighters and overthrow all the, you know, alleged enemies of uh, what Hillary Clinton saw as American interests in the Middle East. And was that Seymour Hirsch, the red line and the rat line? I think me and Will, we linked to that in our episode earlier, but I'll link to that again today. Yeah. All right. Yeah. That's a great piece. It's really good. Um, and something I can add, I, I suppose, about the Libya intervention. Um, Two, uh, two points again. Um, in 2016, a UK parliamentary report was released that completely found that everything I'm saying about the the exaggerated claims about civilian casualties, they had bore, that, that was all borne out. Like even the UK uh, parliament report admits this, that um, that what was the, the exact quote was that the threat to civilians was overstated. And so that was five years after the intervention. But oh, yeah, look at that. They just found it was all based on nothing and that, you know, we broke the country into three. Um, and uh, the second point was uh, something that's not mentioned too often about the, the Libya intervention was the role of France and the president, Nic Nicolas uh, Sarkozy. Um, and so France had a huge interest in taking out Gaddafi because apparently Gaddafi was trying to set up a gold-backed currency um, that was supposed to offer an alternative to the, uh, the, the, the French franc that's called the, uh, the CFA franc. It's a franc that's used in Central and Western Africa. And so basically... Um, the French had a almost colonial interest here. You know, the French was trying to sort of reassert its colonial dominance over some of its former uh, colonial uh, vassal states. And, um, and the U.S. helped them do that effectively. It's like, where do you even start with that? Because I guess with any, any of the facts you're dealing with, it's like you really, really got to be careful because like you said, uh, we spend trillions of dollars and they, they go back and they're like, oh, well, that was actually a mistake. What? Yeah, and tens of thousands of people die for it, too. Yeah. And uh, I guess we could add then is that, uh, you know, after the fall of Gaddafi, and Gaddafi gets killed in an absolutely brutal way on the side of the road, Hillary Clinton later laughs about it. Uh, I think she says, we came, we saw, he died, and then cackles uh, like a terrible hyena. But the country really falls into chaos after. And then we have the migrant crisis unfold, and, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of refugees, at the very least, have now drowned in the Mediterranean Sea as they attempted to cross from Libya uh, to, you know, southern Italy there. And th this has been a, a gigantic problem. The smugglers take advantage of people. Uh, there's been reports that half of the women and children who make it into Europe uh, report being raped many times by people in uniforms, either fighting for one of the 
armies in Libya or another. A lot of areas of Libya fell into the hands of jihadist groups. The Islamic State took control of the city of Sirte, which which was actually Muammar Gaddafi's hometown. Uh, but it took 500 bombs by the Americans and an, an awful lot of you know uh, Libyan fighters to rid ISIS of that city in 2016. Obama really made a push to liberate that city before he lost office. Also, there were several jihadist groups that controlled areas of Benghazi, and I think it was really just in the past few months that the uh, General Hiftar government has been able to liberate that city from the jihadist groups. Uh, and this map doesn't show very well, but it's also worth noting that when you get into southern Libya, uh, it's pretty sparsely populated because there's like oil fields and towns surrounding the oil fields, but then a desert in between. And so there's been a lot of problems with trying to uh, stabilize these areas and people blowing up the pipelines. And I think right now Libya's two biggest oil fields are not currently producing oil. This is like 400,000 barrels of oil a day. And you also have an issue within the desert regions. ISIS is making a reemergence. And there's you know the possibility now that they control uh, uh, 10,000 or so square miles. While there's probably low population area, so the, that number sounds a little bit bigger than ISIS is actually controlling, uh, it just goes to show the destabilization caused when America gets involved in these places. Hey, one question I have for you, Kyle, because yesterday we were talking about Yemen and how most of the population in Yemen is in that one little portion versus the entirety of the country. Now, how does it, how is it dispersed in Libya? Is it the same situation or is the population more evenly scattered? So most of the population is among the coastline and I'm not sure what percentage of population falls under what halves of the government. The Southern portions of Libya are pretty sparsely populated. And I think this is even more so now than under Gaddafi. One of the things that Gaddafi did is he built a massive underground irrigation and uh, water system in order to bring fresh water to areas of southern Libya and then, you know, create new farm towns and stuff like that. But with that, you know, there not being a central government to control that system now, uh, it's all, you know, on corruption and uh, they're cutting off certain towns from the water and things like this. And so it's really causing a lot of problems in southern Libya. I'm guessing that people are uh, being forced to relocate because of these issues. Are they a heavily import-based country as well? Uh, I, no, Libya has a lot of oil reserves. And uh, before at least the destabilization caused, they were able to uh, export a lot of oil and then import a lot of goods. I, I know they border Egypt and had a decent trading relationship with Egypt prior to all of this happening uh, but I'm not sure, like, uh, as far as I could tell, the bigger problems in Libya aren't necessarily that there's no access to food and that people are starving, but it's the slavery, it's the rapes, and it's the murders that are just happening all over the place. I mean, you see videos all the time of extrajudicial killings by soldiers on all sides of the conflict. If you get captured, they'll line you up on the side of the street and shoot you in the back of the head. And that's just kind of life in Libya. Uh, in fact, one of the things that they're doing that's really disturbing is if you're like a prisoner of war, they're raping you in the jails or forcing you to sodomize yourself in the jails. They record you doing this. And that's the way I guess they're trying to remove fighters on the opposite side from the battlefields by shaming them so much with sexual abuse. Oh, Jesus. 
Yeah, and it's sort of uh, to, to tack on to one of Kyle's points, um, when, when you get involved in these kind of regime change operations, you kind of have to get behind some nasty groups and you nasty things happen. The, the groups that you support do terrible things. And so one of the groups that was involved in the National Transition Council, the, the government that for a couple of years after the coup or after the, the regime change that was recognized by the UN, um, they, a participant in that council, the National Transition uh, Council, was a group called the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group which goes back a long time. They have some ties to Al-Qaeda. They're, they're a radical you know, jihadi group. They changed their name to the Libyan Islamic Movement, but nonetheless, they were involved in the transition council that the UN sort of uh, rubber stamped. And sort of another uh, negative consequence of our intervention against Gaddafi was that there was a perception that uh, uh, sub-Saharan Africans that were living in Libya were sort of like Gaddafi's henchmen and like his mercenaries. And so a lot of these, they're called Tuaregs, uh, these, these black Africans were rounded up and slaughtered and put in cages and stuff. And so effectively, there were anti-black pogroms as a result of the NATO-backed intervention there. See, one thing I don't understand is the diversity. What is the ethnicity like for most people in Libya? Because obviously it's in Africa, you would, you would expect to see Africans, but is it a mix of many different groups of people? Like, how does that start to change as you go through Africa? If you guys know. I could say a little bit about that. Um, I know that in North Africa, it's in the Islamic Maghreb. It's sort of just like that, that first strip of countries. So Sudan, Egypt, Egypt is more like, I don't know if there's, I don't know if there's a distinction between Egyptian Arabs and like Arabian, like, like from the Gulf, the, the, excuse me, the Arabian Peninsula Arabs. I don't know if there's an ethnic difference there, but I think there's some cultural similarities, but then there's other ethnic groups like Berbers who aren't quite like, they don't look, they look maybe more like uh, Arabs than Africans. And then, of course, I think there may be Arabs working in sort of North Africa. And as you go further south, you get like sub-Saharan Africans who ethnically look more like, I guess, what you'd expect to, an African to look like. But okay, that, that, that helps. I mean, I guess another question I'd ask is when you're talking about like Shiites versus Sunnis, are we talking about the same race of people who just kind of end up on different sides or are we talking about two different groups of people? Um, largely the Shia thing, it's, it, it's, it, that is a religious designation. However, like the most like uh, prominent Shia country with a Shia theocracy, Iran, they are a different ethnicity. They're Persians. They have like a different society than Arabs. Iran is not an Arab society. That's, that's what, that's Persia, the former Persian uh, civilization. And so there is, there are some differences there, but of course, Islam spans across everywhere from North Africa down to the East, Eastern Africa and Somalia, the Arabian Peninsula, the Middle East, the Levant. Uh, Central Asia, like Afghanistan and Uzbekistan, the Islamic world is very large. And so there's a huge diversity of, of ethnicities. Yeah, that's pretty much what I've gathered. Um, did you want to add something, Kyle? I don't have a whole lot to add, just that even you know within the Middle East, you have like the Kurds and the Turks that are separate ethnic groups from like the Arabs, but at the same time are Sunnis. And Libya is considered to be a part of the Middle East. Uh, Libya, Egypt, and then going all the way to... Iraq, uh, sometimes Iran is included or not in the you know map of the Middle East. Uh, but I, I think that Libyans are a little bit more of Arabs than Africans. Uh, but it, it gets complicated when it, whenever you're dealing with these designations. I'm sure there's different people in Libya who would tell you different things uh, as far as what they consider themselves. Gotcha. Well, I guess just to recap Libya, where are we at today? <laughs> well, it's a huge mess. Right now, one of the interesting things going on that I could talk about is, I believe the eldest son, but the, the son of Muammar Gaddafi that was likely to take this, the throne, Saif Gaddafi, has been released from his captivity uh, last year. 
and is now throwing his hand to the ring as the running to be the next president of Libya. They're gonna are they're planning on holding elections in Libya towards the end of the year. I have no idea how this is gonna work. I mean, there's three separate governments. How they're gonna hold elections? There's a massive migrant problem. How they're gonna determine who's a Libyan and who's a migrant and you know, where all the borders are and how they're going to, like, securely get ballots to all these, like, isolated towns in South Libya without somebody stealing them. So it seems to me very unlikely that however this election turns out, that anybody on any of the losing sides will be happy and accept the results of the election. So, in fact, the election may actually create more turmoil than stability. Uh, and this is something that's seen quite often in Africa. Well, out of the three governments, is there one that's bigger than the other? Or are they all about kind of the same size? How does that work? I'm I'm not. The UN-backed government doesn't seem to have a whole lot of militias backing it. The other government in Western Libya seems to have a little bit more militia. Uh, General Hiftar's government, like I said, has uh, international support from both Russia and the Emiratis. And so... I, I don't know. <laughs> it, it seems to me that there's a lot of like questions to be left answered in Libya. And maybe Libya just never be reunites itself as a state again. I, I think it'd be very likely. Although it is said that like Saif Gaddafi uh, studied his father and understands like all the different sets and groups within Libya and would be somebody who would actually have the information needed in order to try to reunite Libya because he understands all the you know old standing agreements of all these small towns and villages and ethnic groups uh, that probably nobody else just has that information. Right. Uh, do you want to? I'll go ahead. I was going to say I think there's sort of a similar situation with Iraq because Iraq has very distinct uh, ethnic and sort of sectarian divisions. Well, Libya too used to be three separate principalities. It wasn't always one giant country like this. I think it was after World War One. You had three, I forget all the names. There was like Tripolitania and a couple, two other ones. So yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting how when we intervene here, countries start flying, you know, breaking in, breaking in half and flying apart like this. Yeah, I guess here's a question I have because we mentioned yesterday is kind of similar with Yemen that Yemen used to be North Yemen and South Yemen. Uh, was it always North and South Yemen before that? I just, I don't know anything about it. I know at one point, actually, the Zaydis, which are now more or less represented by the Houthi uh, political and militia movement, actually controlled a large portion of Yemen. And there's some uh, longstanding uh, hostilities between the Zaydis and now the Houthis and some of the tribes of Yemen because of the oppression from way back when. But I really can't. I, I think the Ottomans attempted to control at one point. I'm sure way back you had uh, the the Saudis and just different groups throughout the time who have uh, taken control of the Arabian Peninsula and whatnot. Uh, but yeah, I can't go all the way back. I just know like sparse details along the way. Okay. I know at one point they were ruled by Yemen was ruled, or at least part of it was ruled by a dude named uh, King Yahya. And so you can maybe look him up and you might get some of the history of sort of Yemen's politics. King Yahya. King Yahya. All right. Well, that pretty much covers Libya. Um, I guess before we do like a full recap, did you guys want to actually discuss Somalia real quick? Yeah, well, I'll let you start off there because I think the information you have becomes comes before mine. And yeah, I'll just yeah. start off by saying Somalia is that one country where it's like, you already have a libertarian paradise. It's uh, Somalia. So... <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, because they had a their, their central government collapse. That's why people would say this, that, you know, there's some kind of anarcho-capitalist society. 
But if you'll permit a digression, I will say that actually Somalia, after the collapse of their central government, you see all these like metrics go up and prove of like exactly. Exactly. Um, A a guy um, was on Tom Wood's show once and they were talking about the same thing that when you yes, uh, Somalia is kind of a mess. But when you compare the situation, you have to compare before they had a government and after they got rid of their government. And when you look at after, yeah. they're kind of doing better than they were. I mean, obviously, there's still problems. There's still Somali pirate ships. But compared to, be- compared to before, it's better. Right. And of course, it's completely unfair to call them like a stateless society. Somalia's right. government collapsed after like 20 years of Marxist dictatorship under Ziad yeah. Bure. And so you can't call this some kind of capitalist utopia. It's absurd. A Marxist destroyed the country and their central government chaotically collapsed. And so, I don't know, it's just that's ironic, I think. However, uh, getting to the actual... Uh, the conflicts in Somalia. Um, a lot of this goes back to the year 2000 when the United States backed the creation of something called the transitional transitional national government. And that's very similar to what uh, the UN backed in Libya. There's all, all the time the West tries to do this in these countries. Um, later, that would be called the transitional federal, federal government. However, um, after 9-11 and the, like the, the kicking off of like the global war on terror, uh, the CIA in Somalia began backing warlord groups. Um, And those warlords were basically going after anyone who they called a Islamist or a jihadist. And again, we see this happen all over the place. We see it happen in Afghanistan where some, you know, local farmer doesn't like his local competition and says, oh, yeah, he's part of the Taliban. Go go arrest him. And so that's basically what was happening in Somalia. The U.S. was backing warlords who were, you know, assassinating and kidnapping people who they claimed were um, uh, Islamists. And despite the complexity, uh, despite the complexity of all this, we... (laughs) <laughs> we still see the same common pattern throughout everything, really. Right, right. Yeah, there's always, there's like a couple different like archetypes of how this happens. And you see it going back all the way to like the, the British and French partitions of various countries in the Middle East and Africa. It's, I don't know, imperialism doesn't work uh, in case uh, you didn't know I believe that. Anyway, um, excuse me. So um, in response to the, the CIA's backing of these warlords and all their abuses in the population, this effectively drove Somalis into the arms of a... Uh, or drove them to support the creation of a new government called the Islamic Courts Union. Um, and and the, the Islamic Courts Union, the United States did not like. The, it was not the government that they had chosen for Somalia, and so they, they considered it like an enemy. And so in late 2006, uh, the United States pressured a, a neighbor of Somalia, Ethiopia, to basically march in there and kick out the, uh, the Islamic Courts Union. And they crushed them and ousted them, and it was a violent, brutal thing. Um, however, two years later, in 2008, the youth faction of the Islamic Courts Union called Al-Shabaab, and that will be relevant into the future, and I think what Kyle talks about. Um, Al-Shabaab rises up, and they basically kick the Ethiopians out. So all throughout the early 2000s, Somalia is like changing hands over and over again, from the the transitional government to the the Islamic Courts Union to the Ethiopians to Al-Shabaab. So the United States then makes a compromise with the Islamic Courts Union after Al-Shabaab kicks out uh, the Ethiopians, and Al-Shabaab says, forget that, like the, you know, they basically break off from the Islamic Courts Union and say, you guys are traitors for making an agreement with the United States. And so effectively, um, uh, excuse me, I lost my train of thought. Um, oh, yeah, this is exactly what I was going to say. OK, so Al-Shabaab, after this point, this is when they declare allegiance to Osama bin Laden. And this is when they really become like a hardcore, like Arab style uh, jihadist group and stuff. And so it was all because of all this interventionism of the U.S. backing these warlords um, and a guy, named, a journalist named Jeremy Scahill, in his, his book, Dirty Wars, it's revealed that all along the United States actually was fine with keeping the original Islamic Courts Union, that they just wanted to weaken it. Um, 
except this is completely egregious because um, all this chaos that we'd stirred up in the country led to a, a, a famine. There was a terrible drought in the country and all the fighting that we had kicked up and stirred up there, uh, it led to the death of 250,000 people. And half of those were children just from the famine. And so all along, we planned on keeping the original Islamic Courts Union guy. But uh, but nonetheless, we went through with all this and it ended up in this terrible bloodshed. Well, I guess Kyle's going to show us some stuff on the map. Go for it. All right. So what I got going on here is uh, this is a map of Somalia. I don't have one with uh, the actual lines for Al-Shabaab, but Al-Shabaab generally controls the southwestern areas of uh, Somalia. In 2017, August of 2017, some U.S. forces, uh, special forces, get the idea that what they're going to do is they're going to go and capture a key town uh, that's controlled by uh, Al-Shabaab. And this town is critical because uh, it's one of the more fertile areas that Al-Shabaab controls, and it's where they get a large portion of the revenue. And because it's more fertile, they're able to like hide from the drones in this area because there's uh, trees to provide coverage. Um so what we have end up happening here is that the U.S. Special Forces go to the African Union forces, and there's a Ugandan general in charge of this area, and they say, this is our plan. And the Ugandan general told them that it's not going to work and that there's tons of complicating factors, including tribal disputes uh, be among the different groups of people that live in the towns, and uh, that there's just not enough fighters, and they're not well enough trained, and this isn't going to work. Uh, the U U.S. Special Operation Forces go along with this anyways, and they team up with a Somali National Army general uh, by the name of Shigao. And General Shigao is actually a former member of Al-Shabaab, and he didn't even defect into the Somali National Army until he was pretty much cornered. And then the first battle he fought on behalf of the Somali National Army, he lost and lost a ton of equipment uh, to the to Al Shabaab actually, and so there's a lot of questions as to the loyalty of this general that the United States pits uh, to run the Somali National Army in a town. They're going to try to basically do a um, counterinsurgency operation in. They're going to go in. They're going to embed in the town. They're going to secure the town and show the people that life under the Somali National Army and the Americans is preferable to life under Al Shabaab. Uh, another problem they have is that the U.S. Special Operations use a translator for this mission, and this particular translator had a history of giving Americans bad information. In fact, this led to an attack where Americans killed 22 Allied forces, and it was likely that the translator had uh, some personal motives uh, to, to you know, distort the information and get the Americans to kill Allied forces. Uh, this also particular translator was married to a woman who was from one of the warring villages uh, in, in this particular town. And so, again, he has incentive to give false information, but the Americans use them anyways. Uh, whenever the Americans start moving in, some of the villagers uh, who are fighting against each other say, we don't want to be mistaken for Al-Shabaab. So they go to General Shigao and General Shiga works out a deal where the warring factions lock all their rifles into sheds in each town. And this way, there's no reason for the Americans to come in and shoot them or to mistake them for militants of any kind. And this is a way there's actually a little bit of uh, peace and truth going on in the, the area. 
Uh, a couple days later, one of the villagers notices drones flying overhead, and one of the villagers goes to General Shigao and says, hey, we see the drones up there. Can you call and tell the Americans that we're not al-Shabaab, we're not militants, don't come attack us? Uh, General Shigao says, yeah, sure, whatever. And uh, the next day, the drones are bad, so the villager goes back to General Shigao and again warns them and pleads this time, tell the Americans we're not al-Shabaab, we're not militants. Don't know if General Shigao didn't pass this information to the Americans or not, but the next day, the United States Special Operations Forces and the Somali National Army carry out a joint raid on this village and end up slaughtering eight villagers. Immediately, they report this as they killed eight members of al-Shabaab, but it became pretty obvious uh, very quickly that these were just civilians, and the, the civilians present at the scene report these are more or less executions and not any kind of mistaken or botched raid. Uh, the rifles were not out at the time, uh, so there would have been no return fire from the villagers towards the Somali and the U.S. troops. Uh, bullets found at the scene suggest that both the Somali National Army and the U.S. soldiers fired in this raid. Uh, the villagers get very upset about this, obviously, seeing uh, eight of their people slaughtered. When they went through several steps in an attempt to, get, to make sure that this didn't happen, and this is one of the things I think I, I encounter people, especially on the right in America, where they say, well, if the, if the people of these countries just showed America that they weren't our enemies, then we wouldn't attack them. And these you know, kind of mistakes don't happen. But as you can see from this story, that they absolutely do. Oh, I mean, this, I, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, uh, just to finish up, where this gets more serious is that about a month later, there's the largest terrorist attack ever in Africa, third largest terrorist attack anywhere in the world, when a man driving a truck loaded with, uh, some say up to two tons of explosives, detonates in downtown Mogadishu, killing, I saw today the new estimate is at least 587 people. Now, the Somali national government and the Americans all blame this terrorist attack on al-Shabaab, and maybe it was al-Shabaab, but al-Shabaab has not claimed credit for this attack, and it's believed that the guy who carried out the attack was from the village where the civilians were executed. And so uh, this is, I think, for me, just a perfect example of why American foreign policy fails every time. We take on this intervention. We think we're going to go into this village, secure it, and make it better for the people. Turns out we kill a bunch of innocent civilians and make it worse. We're using resources and translators that are proven to be liars. We're allied with former members of al-Shabaab. And this thing was never going to work in the first place. And it turned into a month later, you have the very obvious blowback. A lot of times the blowback doesn't come right away. Like you have the you know Clinton policy all those years of bombing and starving the Iraqis. And it's not like a week after Madeleine Albright said the price was worth it, that you had the attempt attack on 9-11. But here's a case where the you know response comes so quickly, I think it's hard to deny. I just like for people listening or watching, just to try to imagine... Um, you're living in an area and you say you have to go to like the commander, like the governor or whoever, and just beg them like, hey, there are people flying over us and they think we're terrorists. Can you please tell them we're not terrorists? Can you please tell them to not blow us up? I don't even think most people want to think about that. We don't have to. We live, we live perfectly fine. Um, I, I've, I've never seen a bomb go off. I've, I've never really seen a dead body in my life other than like at funerals and most people are in that situation. So I don't think people can really imagine 
And it's just so bad. It, it seems so careless to not think about any of these things. And that's exactly what the neoconservatives have done for years. And it's not, it's, it, it, everybody's go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Oh, you know, you're good. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I think something everybody should probably do is just go look up on YouTube or something like there's all there's videos of people, you know, filming on their cell phone and stuff of what it looks like to be in a building when it gets hit by a high explosive. Like we can think of it as like, you know, you often see the uh, drone footage like it's all green. It looks like a video game. It's all in the night or, it's, uh, the, or the forward looking infrared. And so it kind of looks like a video game. But no, in fact, this is the worst. If, if you're if you're around for one of these explosions, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. This is the most frightening, terrifying, traumatic thing in your entire life. And we're multiplying that by tens of thousands constantly with all the bombs we're dropping. You know, so I'm it's just, just think about the misery and the trauma that we're spreading around planet Earth. It's just it's unthinkable. Yeah. It's, most people imagine that. And like I I don't even think I've witnessed like a really bad car accident. Like I'm just the type of guy like I've never seen anyone shot, never witnessed anybody murdered. But it goes it goes on every day, all day long. And, you know, we take so much for granted in this country. Uh, what, what do you think about this, Kyle? I mean, it what the hell can be done because we have every, every everything's intertwined you have the politicians intertwined with all the people that um produce all these weapons and just to diverge for a second there's a good book it's called war is a racket and it was a speech given by generally general smedley butler and at the time of his death he was the most decorated marine in all of the, the military and basically what he was saying is like you know you take like the duponts for example who produce powder before the war they made six seven million annually and after the war or during the, uh, you know, the profits during the war, they made like 50 million. So their profits just went like 10 times up. So certain people do profit during war, but I don't know. Everything's just so intertwined that uh, us three guys, like what does our opinion matter almost? It's just so crazy. But, you know, I wish more people would think about these things. Right. And well, that's the thing. We just got to make this matter to more people and, and to do it somehow. Because you know, while the politicians get money from the weapons makers, if the people say that we're not going to vote for you, then the money is not worth it for them. Because there's plenty of other cronies in D.C. and around the United States who are willing to donate tons of money to politicians to get huge contracts. One of the brilliant points that Scott Horn makes is also that it's not just the weapons makers. But imagine they, you know, the, there's 500,000, uh, you know, active duty or something like that, that, that if you're the, just the company that makes the buttons or the shoelaces or, you know, the little ribbons or, you know, whatever else you have in the military, you're talking about just these massive, unbelievably huge contracts. And so you, you just have to make people prioritize the human life of people that live outside of the United States. And that's, uh, you know, kind of what I, I hope that me and Will are able to do by, sharing these stories and trying to help people to empathize with the victims of American foreign policy. And for those people who aren't interested in this, this obviously doesn't make us safer, even on a practical level. If you're the kind of person that says like, you know, you know, turn the Middle East to glass, I don't care about the Arabs or, you know, whatever other racist thing you want to say, you know, we're spending trillions of dollars on it. You, you know, U.S. soldiers go overseas and they come back and they're not the same. They're missing limbs. They're, you know, traumatized by what they've seen. Uh, you know, they've lost so many friends. And, you know, just the total implications of the war, even from the side just of the Americans, it, we never take the oil, right? If the Iraq war was supposed to be profitable for Americans. I remember at the time, I was just a kid, but I would hear people and adults around me saying 
that the war was a good thing and it was going to boost the U.S. economy. And five trillion dollars later, we've gotten nothing for it. And so, you know, if you really can't empathize with the poor dying people, then at least empathize with your own wallet that's obviously suffering because of these stupid, stupid interventions. And it accomplishes nothing. The the final result of all this, you know, U.S. operation to secure the town is that a month after the attack, or not even, uh, I think just a few weeks after the raid that killed these civilians, the the town fell to al-Shabaab. And so at the end of the day, nothing positive to show for for the Americans. We don't control more territory. Al-Shabaab's not weaker. And in fact, they're stronger because the United States and the Somali National Army made it clear that they are not about securing the rights and the safety of the people, that they don't care, that their mission is to go out there and rack up deaths. And so it it, it doesn't benefit anyone for any reason. I don't know why people would listen to what you say and think that's so extreme. What you know, most of what you say isn't extreme at all. It's just you're just you're just talking about the stuff that's actually happened. You know, we haven't spent any time during this week bashing Islam. We haven't done that at all. We haven't we haven't bashed any religion at all. All we've done is just talk about the facts all week. So it's, you know, uh, go ahead, Will. Oh yeah, I was just gonna say you brought up uh, you know war is a racket and definitely Kyle Kyle kind of referred to this too that. You know, this is really what this represents, This tr- these trillions of dollars. This is the American government capturing the productive capacity of the American people and completely stealing it from them and putting it towards something else. And so, Steve, earlier you mentioned how sort of there's like uh, left-wing critiques of imperialism kind of tying it in with capitalism. But this is a completely perverted – it's a racket. This is not a market. This is a uh, – you know, it's, it's completely perverted. Exactly. And the way General Smedley Butler laid it out in his book, he's like, look – Look at what our founding fathers said. They talked about entangling alliances. He talks about how, you know, in 1896, our national debt was about a billion dollars. And after World War One, it was 25 billion. And he just goes on and on and on. It's a great little book. And he actually gave that as a speech throughout the country. But yeah, at the end of the book, he talks about who pays for all this. Well, it's twofold. On one hand, we, the taxpayer, pay for all this. I mean, we pay the taxes and a lot of the tax money goes to military spending. And there's that whole argument about, you know, what do we spend more on uh, military or welfare? And some will say we spend way more on welfare and others will say, oh, you know, you're counting in Social Security, blah, blah, blah. But on on the other hand, the other people that pay for it are just the people with their lives. Um, Like like you said earlier, Will, um, I've met a ton of people. I've met a ton of people that uh, were veterans. I've met a ton of people uh, in school and uh, in, in my jobs and they're screwed up. They, they admit they're screwed up. They admit that they're not the same. And, you know, there, it's, it's no wonder why Ron Paul got more military support than all the other co- candidates combined. You guys remember that? Absolutely. Right. And, and I mean, the government doesn't care for the veterans when they get back. That's the thing is that no, they, they, they pl- pledge they're going to care for these veterans. But if you talk to people who have tried to go through the VA system, one, it's impossibly complex. You chat the wrong bots on a form a couple of years you know, prior to your problem, and suddenly you're not able to get the coverage that you need. They don't recognize a lot of the problems. You know, It's always years later after campaigning that they finally start to provide treatment for veterans with PTSD, et cetera. A lot of times they just give these guys opiates and send them on their way and then pull the prescriptions out from under them. And this is a recipe for you know creating a, a epidemic of heroin and opium abuse among veterans and then it, you you just also have the issue look at the burn pit victims i mean you, i think a more popular or a more well-known story would be like the uh troops that's supposed to agent orange back in vietnam 
But, you know, the modern day version of that is from the Iraqi war pits where all these veterans are developing strange and erratic forms of cancer because of the toxins that they were exposed to while serving our country, you know, allegedly in Iraq. And then they come back and all the politicians that sent them over there and who say that if I say anything bad about the Iraq war, I hate the troops. Don't but get that, the troops. Like that, was the, that was the exact line. If you did not support the war in Iraq, you hated you hated the troops. You hate the troops. You want them to die. You 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 hate America. That that's exactly what I was told. Um, thank God. I think the line was "You shut up." That was the line for the Iraq War. "You shut up, boy." That was like what Bill O'Reilly, I think, was telling people. <laughs> well, uh, but, uh, talking about the veterans uh, and sort of how they're just completely expendable. Um, yeah. You know, there's been a lot of talk in our country about gun violence and stuff. But what people don't seem to talk about too much is that 60% of gun deaths are suicides. And the people who are blowing their heads off more than anybody are war veterans. And so if we want to talk about gun violence, I think that's really the most, that's, it's more than half of all gun deaths. And more than, I don't know what proportion of the suicides are veterans, but veterans are twice as likely compared to the average man to kill themselves. Yeah, it's a mixture of they're either veterans or on pills or both. Right. Well, it, it's been a really, really great week talking to you all. I mean, I was going back and listening to the episodes earlier, and there's just a mountain of info. You, you guys are both really, really smart guys. I could, I could go on like you guys do about economics, but you guys really, really know your foreign policy stuff. And just listening to you guys, it makes me want to actually get out and talk to more people and like expose more of the stuff because foreign policy is one of those things where like you could be a little more optimistic talking about a tax cut versus you know war. It's just the truth. A lot of people don't even want to talk about war. So I can't thank you guys enough for just um, doing what you all do. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. thanks so much for having us on and giving us the ability to talk about all these issues. I know uh, a lot of times I, I feel like I'm either screaming in uh, to, you know, just my kind of little corner of the internet. So anytime anybody could let, you know, let me expose myself and my ideas to their, you know, their audience, I really appreciate it. I mean, the big thing is, is that everybody loses. It, it, nobody wins. It's not like the American people are getting more safe. The people of these other countries are not more safe from any American interventions, whether it's Libya, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen. It, it doesn't matter. Every time it, it goes the wrong way, uh, people get less safe and Americans are left safe and we waste money on it. So, you know, there's no reason to do any of this. And if you just care and tell your politicians that I'm not going to vote for you if you keep voting for the wars, then, you know, then maybe we could you know, at least get people to start to question some of these conflicts that don't help anyone. It's not like our intervention in Somalia. It, it, it is, can be any, it, there's not a 9-11. We're not chasing after Osama bin Laden there. We're trying to maintain radical groups in the country that really don't have global jihadist ambitions. And so, you know, there's no reason for it. It doesn't do anything positive. So we could just end it. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, go ahead, Will. You want to give us your last words? Also, I'm, I'm, I'm going to mention that. I'm going to link to Foreign Policy Focus, which is Kyle's podcast. But let us know what we can link to for you, Will. Yeah, sure. And so just as a matter of a final word, I guess, Kyle kind of covered the practical aspect. This doesn't work. This isn't keeping us safe. We're blowing money on it. It's crazy. Veterans are killing themselves. But I would also say that like, you don't necessarily have to be ideological to be anti-war. But for your liberta for libertarians out there in the audience, I really think foreign policy and war and peace is the should be your guiding star. If you care about the non-aggression principle, if you care about the government, you know, uh, violating people's rights and uh, abusing them, uh, the wars are just it's it's a monstrosity. 
not only on the domestic side, the economic interventions, the taxation, the regulations, the price controls and prior conflicts, but also you should care about, you know, foreigners being blown to bits. That's, that's also not, you know, not acceptable. You know, I think one of the problems is you're starting to see a lot of reactionary groups on both sides. Like you have the alt-right and you have Antifa. And I think the thing is, you know, I've never been a part of, uh, racist uh bashing you know no one's ever come up to me and held a gun at me and be like oh you cracker none like that it's never happened but i can imagine for people that they've been at a protest and whether they're white or black or antifa or whatever they they get angry and whatever lo all the logic goes out the door at that point you're just angry you want to hurt other people so you know what happened with chris cantwell and uh christopher chase rachel's like what happened to those guys they used to be pretty decent and just within a matter of a year or two they just um, they're just total race realists in that they, they're pretty much open in that they just want to start a white society. That's just right. one example, but it's, it's so confusing. I think it's very, very important. We talk about these things and try to get, try to get people away from the emotional aspect and just be like, look, uh, whether or not people die or not, this is a waste of money. And just like the whole practical issue of it, because yeah, it seems like some of this should be apolitical, at least some of it. Yeah, absolutely. It shouldn't be like a radical political statement to say that we should not steal money from people in order to blow up children. Is that such a hard? I mean, I know that's kind of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm narrowing it down to something it, that does happen, obviously, but that's not the whole picture. But still, that's you know effectively what's happening. Um, but however, you asked me to, to give you some things you can link out to. Um, yes, sir. Uh, I have I have an archive at the Libertarian Institute people can check out if they're interested. Um, I've written for antiwar.com. Uh, Kyle and I have a couple pieces together. We wrote one about uh, the siege on the city of Mosul in Iraq when the Islamic State occupied it. You can check that out at the Libertarian Institute. Um, and we recently got one published on the Afghan, the Afghan opium trade and sort of how that goes to uh, bolster the Taliban and stuff. And you can find that at Consortium News. Yeah, you guys did a really thorough research with that. And like, I learned a lot just from listening to Pat McFarland's Liberty Weekly with uh, Kyle. I learned a ton about the opium trade. Just and most people understand opium is growing there, but I didn't I never knew the extent of it. Um, you know, just the fact that like when we go in there and try to eradicate it, well, you have another problem. Everyone there grows it. <laughs> uh, that, 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 that's an immediate problem. So just like we we try to solve a problem and create two more. And then that's that's U.S. foreign policy. Yeah, we're there forever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for doing this. Um, you know, we covered five countries. I imagine there's a lot more countries we could cover in the future. So maybe in the next few months, we could do something like this again. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's always going to be wars to, to, you know, criticize. So, yeah, you got it. Right. Anytime. All right. Thank you, guys. Hope everyone enjoyed this week. It's been a mountain of info passed around. So we'll see you guys next week. Hey, everyone, please like, follow, donate, subscribe and share. Any donations will be used to reach more people.